Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. My name is Audra. All right. So we both saw The Lion King recently. Yes, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I liked it. It wasn't as good as the original. The original um, cartoon one. Which yeah, came out, what year did that come out? Like literally before I was born, right? I don't know. 19... Like 95 90 or 96. Something. something. Yeah. Which I it thought... It was good. I liked the CGI. I, I liked the whatever they did. It looked very, very realistic. Almost creepily ir- like realistic um i, I th- what i didn't like was i think you're so used to the old characters that some of the jokes fell flat for me like i didn't think like the the who were the two the um the pig and the meerkat thing yeah yeah yeah. yeah that yeah. wasn't as funny to me as like the nathan lane and all that kind of stuff yeah so I no I, I, I especially didn't like those as much as the original but everything else i thought was i couldn't good. get it i'm sorry for seth rogan but i could not i was like dude seth rogan sitting in front of me because it was so obviously seth exactly rogan. that's what i said but <laughs> it was too much james it and was sophie like he were was... like oh i didn't even know that was seth rogan and I what? was like, that's clearly Seth Rogen. He's laughing at everything. It was like he was getting high in front of me in I know. the movie theater, like and then, laughing. And then they were like, what didn't Beyonce, was she was in it for some character? Yeah, and I didn't even realize that was Exactly, her. and they were like, every time the, the like lioness or whatever that was Beyonce would come out, they'd be like, oh, Beyonce. And I was like, yeah. I don't know that Beyonce's in this movie. I didn't know I that was Beyonce either. I knew that Seth Rogen either. was in the movie. Sorry, yeah. Beyonce. Um, no, I liked it. It was cool. And then you went to the beach, uh-huh. Manhattan Beach. Well, Manhattan so beach. last weekend you went, had a beach fail, and then you had a good yes, beach day yesterday. They finally listened to me. So a bunch of people last. Didn't I talk about this on the podcast last week or no? I don't think so. I think we just talked about it. Okay, so the music school I go to, there's a bunch of people that aren't from California. Mostly people not from California, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people from out of the country. So for some reason, everybody wants to go to Santa Monica and Malibu. I get Malibu. It's fine. It's very cool. Santa Monica cool go once and then you realize it's dirty that's normally what happens but people still want to keep going back to santa monica and malibu so last weekend everybody was set in their ways i was like let's go to manhattan beach or a little bit south of there so everybody mm-hmm. said no we're going to malibu so we went to malibu point doom to go to the beach which is a, literally a cliff and then a cold beach i don't know if it's normally warm but it was very cold when we were there it's far for you too yeah and then we got there at a normal time where it should have be sunny like 1 and then everybody else that was supposed to meet us there got there after we left at 6.30. So I don't know why they went. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So finally, a group of us went to Manhattan Beach this weekend. It was warm. It was sunny. It was not as packed or as Santa Monica. And it was not as deserted as Point Doom was. And it was fun. Right. Good. But still, I feel like it's so hard to wake up, especially with an. it was an hour and 20 minutes to get there. Yeah. So it's like you live seven miles from the beach. We still have yeah. to like leave at 10 to get there at, yeah. you know, whatever. It's a pain in the butt. Yeah, it's but an all it, day thing. It's nice that it's finally warm. I feel like there's been a June gloom going over uh, L.A. Yes. for like five months. It's felt like forever and it should be gone by now, I feel like. But it, every time we go to the beach somewhere, it's still gloomy. June gloom is lasting. All, it's like summer gloom now. Yeah, I know. It's really annoying. It's v- well, it's here. It's very, very hot here. Yeah, you guys are lucky. Like, I wish it was to be like an 80 year old talk about the weather. Yeah. But yeah. 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 Yikes. Well, that's the OK. Well, that's the L.A. forecast for this weekend. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was doing some other research on like, as I mentioned last weekend, um, Snoop and um, a couple other things. And then I ended up getting sick. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't feeling well all week, which I'm still kind of kind of have a cold right now my sinuses so I went back to an episode that we did 
probably one of our first episodes that when we didn't know how to record anything, which I don't really feel like we know how to record things now, but oh, we have it's a gotten routine so down. much better, way much better. Yeah. But and I remember, I think I was sick when we tried to do it. This is one of our first episodes we tried to do, and I was so sick. I think I had kind of the flu because you were still home from winter break or something when we started this that we did it and it was so bad because I skipped over a lot of stuff mm. and I whatever that we recorded it but I didn't put put it up it was so bad yeah. so I went back to that since I had a bunch of stuff out but then I got like obsessed with it over this weekend so we're going to talk about mm-hmm. the LA mob yep specifically like the, we're going to go into the, some of the early history we're going to talk about Mickey Cohen mm-hmm. Bugsy Siegel like the cool mob if you can say cool mm-hmm. in terms of people killing a ton of people right. well i was going to say people that i would fit in with and then you said <laughs> killing people and then now i don't fit in anymore. you would fit in with i would hope not they're all like murderers well too. gangster sounds cool but murderer that's put it that way it's not cool <laughs> well it's all the same yeah, thing yeah whatever so this is uh, uh almost uh, almost la the lost tapes mob edition the the lost tapes revised <laughs> yeah okay Okay. And I don't know what I'm going to call this yet because this was kind of a cluster of stuff because I needed to, I, I went into a lot of stuff. This could be like a 20-parter. And if I think what we can do is maybe break this down, we were going to do some short episodes of like concert. Um, what was I, like concert experiences people mm. had, but we don't have any of those because apparently no one goes to concerts apparently not no one email no one emailed me so maybe we'll do like some hi- short minisodes of like history of like certain things that um we don't go into super depth you know when we talk about it we kind of gloss over it we can go into like bigger detail and like some mini minisodes or something like that mm-hmm. okay so i'm starting this off at 9039 sunset boulevard which has a long history of nightclubs, gambling, and mobsters, this one spot. Mickey Cohen and Suge Knight were both shot at this address 65 years apart. Mm -hmm. They both lived, and they're both unsolved, technically, but they're likely um, by rival gangs. They were shot from rival gangs. So in the 1940s, the sunset spot um, that Mickey Cohen was shot at at 9039 sunset was called Sherry's and Sherry's was a high profile nightclub with a secret gambling den mm. which FYI most nightclubs and private homes from like the 20s on prohibition on until like the 50s had secret gambling dens oh wow <laughs> so I guess that makes sense yeah they make it sound like it's so secret but literally everything you research it's like was raided at some point every establishment was raided because they all had secret gambling right. dens. so it's like just a given on any given night you could raid somewhere and find a gambling den so at the time Cohen was one of the most notorious mobsters in LA and in the country um, he was very famous in the papers and um, you know in the LA crime scene and beyond and he was being pursued by a rival mobster jack uh, dragna who we'll talk about in a little bit and also um he was being pursued by the lapd's gangster squad um which was a division of the lapd that set up uh, a bunch of illegal stuff and sometimes legal stuff to try to uh, bust these mobsters that were going on in la so in the early morning of july 20th 1949 so around this time 
Cohn was partying with um, columnist uh, Flora Bell Muir and her husband and a bunch of security because he was obviously, as I said, that he was being pursued by a bunch of people. Uh, Flora Bell was um, a confidant in, of Cohen's for many years. Uh, he would tell her certain things. She would print it in the paper. And he had recently ratted out a group of corrupt vice officers uh, to their sup- their superiors, which made him a mark for both the cops, for well, specifically bad cops and bad gangsters. So Mir was asking him why he wasn't worried about being out in such a popular and visible place that night. And Cohen said, quote, not as long as you people are around. Even a crazy man wouldn't take a chance shooting where a reporter might get hit. You're too hot. And I'm assuming the hot meant like you're too known to be hit and right. not hot looking. Right, because that would have no correlation. Well, and she she was an, an older woman and, uh, you know, not Hollywood material, in my opinion. Hmm. So around 4 a.m., Cohen exited Sherry's, surrounded by his bodyguard and all the security um, his bodyguard's name was Harry Cooper, and there was another one of his henchmen that was kind of acting as security. His name was Nettie Herbert, um, and a special agent from the office of the California Attorney General's office, and then the Muirs, her, the husband and wife. As Cohen walked onto the strip sidewalk out of Sherry's, uh, Muir stopped at the foyer of the, of the restaurant uh, club to buy a morning paper, because they had morning editions back then, and someone opened fire on the group. Cohen was struck in the shoulder, Cooper was shot in the stomach, and Nettie, his henchman, uh, was shot multiple times and later died from his wounds. Muir was struck in the backside when a slug ricocheted um, and left a large bruise on her back. And during the chaos, a frustrated Cohen got himself and the lawman, who was the only person he could grab, it sounds like, at the time, and got him into his chauffeured sedan, which was always waiting for him um, right outside by himself and the car sped down the sun onto sunset <coughs> now Nettie the one that died he an ambulance did show up and grab everybody else and took them to the hospital so when Suge Knight was shot he was shot on August 24th 2014 so literally almost 65 years by like a month um, and that was um, the night before the MTV Music Awards and a party was being thrown by Chris Brown and Sherry's at this time in 2014 was called was a club called one oak and that was a popular kind of like rappers one oak out at the time one oak yeah really i don't know if it's I, still there i'm pretty sure it's, it's still there i feel like i think it's still there yeah it's been there till recently i mean <coughs> I'm pre- I, about I actually i'm pretty sure sophie just went there oh really yeah i think so just text and ask her he was shot between two and six times i don't know why there's a discrepancy there um, the LAPD said it was a crime of opportunity, probably by a rival gang. He, as well as Cohen, both had multiple attempts on their lives. Um, and obviously, Suge Knight, isn't he in jail at this point? <coughs> um, sorry, I'm probably going to be coughing a little bit here and there because I have a weird tickle in my throat. So this stretch of sunset um, has been host to many changing nightclubs over the decades from jazz to heavy metal which we've kind of covered throughout the podcast and this area was such a hot spot for debauchery because as we've talked about before it was in LA's unincorporated juris- jurisdiction meaning that they could get away with a lot more so the sheriff's department covered this area not the LAPD which covered like the corporated part of Los Angeles um, and the sheriff's department at the time 
was even more corrupt than the LAPD, which was notoriously corrupt and has been since the get-go, um, you know, with bad cops, a lot of them being having either family members or were themselves part of the mob, especially at this time. Um, so this made the area on Sunset a prime spot for um, supper clubs with secret backroom gambling or nightclubs that had tunnels to the Chateau Marmont to have, like, illicit rendezvous at the time. So to get us started off, I'm going to play the very famous Mambo Italiano, which was written for Rosemary Clooney. So I'm gonna play her version, but was famously covered by also Dean Martin, who is a mob friend. Um, so here is Rosemary Clooney singing Mambo Italiano. you're in the mob or want a gelato i feel like i'm sitting <laughs> in a pinstripe suit at my big oak desk i want him dead with the I want cigar his family dead and your uzi yeah. is that what they have as uzi i don't know maybe a tommy gun you have to watch the godfather after this yeah tommy gun there mm-hmm. you go tommy gun and your your bulletproof car <laughs> yeah so let's get into the la mafia history mob history gang history Okay, because I have always, I'm not really, um, like, fascinated with the mob. Like, you know, some people are just, like, obsessed with the mob or, mm. like, TV shows or movies or what was the the Sopranos? Like, mm-hmm. literally never saw one episode of The Sopranos. Yeah, neither have I. I want to watch it, though. Um, so, like, I don't, I don't know. that. I think Dick Tracy was the only, like, mob-related movie I've ever seen, um, which is a joke because it had Madonna in it. Mm. Um, so, I, but I was always fascinated by, like, how did how did that all start here like back to the beginning so long before the bloods and crips or the ms-13 la gangs all that that we all hear about today um la had the black hands and the casa nostra the italian mob as we know it in the america came from sicily and the sicily mafia and in each uh, sicilian family there was a group of criminals that kind of ran their village back in Italy, and they involved mostly racketeering, drug trafficking, murder, extortion, prostitution, etc. So when the immigrants came to America, they set up the same system, and it started mostly in the East Coast, but some Sicilian families came in the U.S. through New Orleans, so there was a big um, kind of network and family network of um, the mob in New Orleans as well. And this was kind of in the late 1800s that some of those, that everybody kind of started coming over and doing that in the States. And some of the families from New Orleans, the New Orleans like racketeer mobbing people came to Los Angeles and made their way up through like New Mexico and Los Angeles. 
Um, some of the most early of these were gangs, and they were a street gangs called the Black Hands, which was also a term that they used in Italy as well. And they mostly ran extortion rackets back then. So one of the big families called, um, get ready for, to me, for me to butcher a bunch of Italian last names, were the Matarangas and the DeSimones, and they were early L.A. Italian crime families. Isn't it the Matrangas? Matrangas. Hey, the sure Matrangas is. and the DeSimones. The there you go. Right. So the Matrangas had like their legit business were like fruit stands. And then they would like shake down other fruit stands or other like grocery stores or whatever. And that was kind of their racket. What's shakedown? Well, they would show up and they would be like, hey, if you don't give me half of this, your money from the day, then I'm going to burn your building down. Or oh, I'm they would gonna, rob know. fruit stands. Yeah. Uh. Or just or just threaten other fruit stands and either have them shut down or take like a portion of their money. That's like, you know. Illegal but adorable. <laughs> well, only if you're getting the money and not the one that's being, you know. Right. Shaken down. I don't know. Whatever. Also, fruit. Shaken down. Fruit, fruit is adorable. Give me all your bananas. Yeah, that's that's cute. <laughs> that's literally the cutest mob story <laughs> I've ever heard. So, the earliest boss, like L.A. boss, mm-hmm. was actually Joseph Iron Man Adrizioni. Is that how you pronounce it? Calzoni. Adrizoni. Adrizoni. A R D I Z Z O N E. And he was the first boss. So before, like, he was considered a part of the boss and the mafia. And before that was basically crime families, not boss mafia families, mm. if that makes sense. It was more organized, I guess. He was in a long feud with the um, Matrangas. The Matrangas, mm-hmm. and he ended up killing off like five of them, you know. Um, and this is like very little information going off of this early stuff. He disappeared in 1931. His body was never found. His wife declared him legally dead in like 1938 or something. And so he was possibly like the first Jimmy Hoffa. Who's Jimmy no one Hoffa? ever. Do f- you know who Jimmy Hoffa is? Mm-mm. Jimmy Hoffa is like a New York crime boss that like went disappeared. He went to, like, a restaurant to have a meeting and, like, disappeared from the parking lot in, like, the 80s or something. Right. And they literally never found him. And there's all these rumors that he's buried under, like, Yankee Stadium or some grocery store parking lot or just stuff like that. Wait, so where do you think this guy went? Not the Jimmy Hoffman guy, the first guy. Oh, I'm sure he was butchered and Yeah, see, so you'd like to think that banana. they're, like, living in Bali still alive or something. Or maybe not this well, guy, but, like, some of the, the dude in the 80s. But they were probably just all dead. Right? Yeah, they're all dead. That sucks. Well, back then they would like feed you to the fish, dude. If you went to the ocean mm-hmm. or, you know, back then no one's looking for you. I mean, how hard is in 1931 someone to go to, in LA going to go, go looking for some like crime boss? Ah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I doubt it. So Jack uh, Dragna, who at the time in 1931, when, um, Joseph went missing. Iron Man went missing. He was working directly for him, and he ended up, obviously, by process of elimination, literally became the head of the L.A. family. And because of um, a Drizoni, he, Drizoni, our Drizoni, <laughs> oh my God, why does that have to be the hardest name? He was constantly fighting within the other Italian families in, L- in L.A. And there was, you know, they were so busy killing off each other they couldn't get really a whole lot done 
So Jack Dragnet, Dragnet like took over controlling everything and kind of getting everybody, all the Italian families on one page and kind of, you know, took over quickly and got rid of the infighting mm-hmm. and became known as LA's most successful boss. Um, he wasn't very flashy or very Hollywood to say the least, but he did run a successful bootlegging operation during prohibition. And when booze became legal again, he ran successful loan sharking rackets and illegal gambling. He was well liked by the East coast affiliates and was at peace with the national crime syndicate, which was the name for the Italian Jewish, basically their mob club. So in New York at one point, the Italians were always fighting the Irish mob and the Jewish mob and blah, blah. blah. And at some point there was so much fighting going on and killing going on that the Italian and Jews kind of came together and were like, Hey, let's kind of, you know, pal up a little bit. And some of the Irish were like, okay, we'll join in too. And you kind of had to be chosen. And that became, became like the national crime syndicate. One of the most famous New York guys that was kind of running this whole thing in LA from New York was Charles Lucky Luciano, which I'm sure you've heard of. Mm-hmm. And um, during this time in like the 30s, um, when Jack Dragna was running everything so smoothly, they thought he kind of needed a little bit of help. And at this time, Bugs, uh, Bugsy Siegel and Mickey Cohen, who I'm going to talk about in a second, um, were sent to LA to team up with Jack Dragna who was not psyched about it, but that kind of became like the 1940s um, start of this like big mob scene in LA that we'll talk about. So let's go into who these players are. So um, Mickey Cohen uh, was actually born in Brooklyn uh, in 1913. He was born Meyer Cohen and he changed his name to Mickey was kind of his nickname. And he was born into a Jewish family, obviously. His dad died when he was really young. I think, like, he was not, he was like a a baby, baby, not even a toddler. Mm -hmm. Um, And after his dad died, his mom and two of his brothers um, moved to Los Angeles and they moved into the Boyle Heights area of Los Angeles, which was a very um, heavily Jewish um, area at that time. There was only about 6,000 Jews at the time. Um, On the whole planet? No, in LA. Um, he when he was a toddler he clearly wasn't looked after Um, uh, his mom I'm assuming was off working he ended up being one of six kids so she I don't know if she got married had other kids Um, but when he was a toddler around three he was working for the newsboys and he would his job his initial job was to sit on the stack of paper so the wind wouldn't blow them away or someone didn't steal them Mm. And he quickly, because he was kind of bright, I guess, for three, realized that he was sitting on, like, this gold mine that these people, like, you know, wanted these papers and were paying for them. So he started stealing the papers himself, and they would go off and buy candy with him. Um, By elementary school age, he was considered a thug, and by age eight or nine, he was, um, he had held up a theater called the California Theater, he held up their box office with a club, like what? a big thick stick. When he was eight. Mm-hmm. Yep, eight or nine. Who's gonna not just take it away from him? You know, he's eight. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the person at the box office was probably twelve. It was working there. I mean, everybody who clearly was working out of the window. It's just a bunch of little people, and then all the parents <laughs> are home people. sleeping. Uh, every, all the adults are loaded. 
and pass out in the street corner and all the kids are running rackets and so far this whole story is just adorable they're like they're clearly 12 <laughs> and robbing fruit stands and holding theaters up and selling newspapers or candies are what are you talking about the little tykes mob mom it's the rat it's the rascal little rascals <laughs> all right so he ended up in reform school um which is where he learned how to box he couldn't read he couldn't write well into his 20s and it, it was Oof. said that he couldn't even like didn't know really his numbers past five <laughs> until he was <laughs> no, in his 20s I did not know your numbers they just uh come on man they just repeat just basically <laughs> <Is he don't> <laughs> <laughs> what all right <laughs> if you have a club and you're robbing people you don't need to know your numbers i guess so yeah Okay, so remember Flora Belmere, who we talked about, who was with him when he was shot. That Hold on. I like, to, I like to think that the highest number he knows is five, so he robs people, <laughs> or he's trying to sell them something, and he's like, they're like, all right, fine, how much do you want? And he goes, five. And they're like, five what? <laughs> he's just, five. You, you can't he's think of any, anything higher. Than, yeah, he's, he's, he's selling everything for five cents. <laughs> uh, adorable. Okay. He died with $5 yeah. in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. So remember Flora Belmere. Her husband was the one that would actually taught him how to read and write when he was like later on in his life. So that's when she was like befriending him for the paper and he was already like a well-known mobster. Her husband was teaching him how to do all that. So when he took up boxing, boxing was a pretty new sport back then and was illegal in a lot of states. Mm -hmm. California had legal, um, kind of legalized it a little bit, but it was limited to four rounds. Oh, wow. Because back then they were probably just out to kill each other basically just mma yeah um so he was there in la doing that a little bit and then when prohibition hit he moved to chicago where he kept trying to box Mm -hmm. but he was short and not that intimidating according to some people (laughs) so he he didn't get very far he he wasn't very successful at it but he was really popular among the mobsters around there and he was he was known to you know obviously for his violent tendencies so it wasn't long before he was picked up to be the enforcer for the Jewish mob in Chicago um, he spent some time in jail there for uh, being a part of killing several men over a card game um, he got out and went to Cleveland for a little bit and that's where he met some associates of Bugsy Siegel um, and some of the people in the New York um, mafia scene there and they said, hey, why don't you meet Bugsy Siegel back in L.A.? We're sending him back there, too. And you guys can uh, go hang out with Jack Dragna and get some of this um, gambling stuff going. So Bugsy Siegel, who a lot I'm sure most people, if you haven't heard of anybody in the mob, you know of him. He was born in Brooklyn in 1906 to a really poor Jewish immigrant family. Um, as a kid, he met uh, Meyer Lansky who in in his own neighborhood they were both pretty involved already at a young age with robbery and car theft lansky had a run-in with charles lucky luciano who was a really notorious horrible murderer and like the big new york mob boss guy for a long time and they had kind of had a few run-ins here and there um and luciano is known as the father of the u.s organized crime by the way Mm. So Lansky decided that their Jewish neighborhood needed a gang, like an organized gang, like the Italian and Irish gangs had been doing all over New York and New Jersey. And um, Lansky started it. And one of the first people that he asked, that he recruited, was um, Bugsy Siegel. And their first name was called the Bugs and Meyer Mob, which goes with your adorable 
mob related stories. Bugs. Um, Lansky Bugsy was like cuckoo baluku, and Lansky hired Bugsy out to other mobs, like the, the other like Italian or Irish mobs, as a hitman. So they would kind of hire him out and pay Lansky, and Bugsy would just go kill whoever <laughs> he was told. Jesus. Okay. Uh, I mean, it was crazy. He was known to be very handsome, charismatic, and was absolutely feared. Um, as a teen, his violent temper and personality uh, soft had friends describing him as crazy as a bed bug, which you can imagine in New York in the early turn of the century, how many bed bugs there were mm. everywhere. So that's kind of where, um, you know, Bugsy crazy as a bed bug kind of came. Um, when people started calling him Bugsy to his face, knowing it was the bugs thing or bugs, which made it worse, he would like freak out and he would threaten everybody. And he said his, his friends actually called him Ben, which, literally I've never seen in anything um, because he was obviously known as Bugsy uh, and he said his stranger his friends called him Ben strangers called him Mr. Siegel and he didn't want to be called Bugsy to his face because it pissed him off um, so when he was a mobster in the beginning he was mainly a hitman in the muscle and he was noted for his prowess with guns and violence he began smoking opium as a kid, oh God. as a teenager, basically, and was and was always heavily involved in the drug trade mm. and bootlegging. So when he, by the time he got to LA, just kind of a side note, he was one of the one of the um, the ones that w- who organized the drug trade between Mexico and the U.S. Um, so he's known to have been the one to set that whole up. So if you want to start talking about like how drugs started kind of filtering in from Mexico to the to our country, you can thank Bugsy Siegel because he kind of had a play in that because he was a drug addict. Right. Um, and the small gangs, before he kind of came out there, didn't have really the capacity to handle all that movement of that much like drug stuff going on. Um, so when S- Siegel was sent to L.A., um, he was kind of in hot water in New York at the time and he was in and out of trouble murdering a bunch of people clearly and he was suspected of murdering a few rivals which he did and they couldn't really catch him because what he had done was checked himself into the hospital at the time snuck out of the hospital at night when everybody thought he was sleeping murdered like two people who were his rivals and then snuck back into the hospital so when they arrested him the hotel or the hotel the hospital hotel had him down as being a a patient at the time so he got he got off but they knew he did it so he was kind of had a mark on his head so they were like okay you go out to LA and let's kind of let's kind of take care of this um let's ramp up this LA scene because LA was kind of an untapped market they had the Italian stuff going on there and there was some Jewish gangs. You know, there was like little street gangs, like I was saying, but there wasn't this big gang influence that was the East Coast gang influence was at the time, or even Chicago. Chicago had a big, you know, mob influence with like um, Al Capone and all that kind of stuff going on there. And LA didn't have their like big scene yet. So they sent Bugsy Siegel out there to make it a big thing. Once he got there, um, you know, Cohen was kind of already known for doing his own thing and it was obviously grew up in LA. So. Bugsy Siegel enlisted Cohen to be his chief lieutenant and then everything kind of took off from there so as I said there was always some small gangs around LA gambling bootlegging you know bootlegging if you don't know what that is it's it's the illegal making and um, distributing of distributing distributing of alcohol why did I say distributing Mm. um 
obviously prostitution, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, that was kind of the start of how they got together. So Siegel was very flashy and handsome, like I said before. He had a glamorous, huge mansion um, in Beverly Hills and was soon, you know, starting to befriend all these celebs, like movie stars, all these executives, you know, with all like the big movie um, movie studios in Hollywood. Um, because he was so good looking and he was obviously dating a bunch of women and and because of this ability to kind of befriend all the elite in LA he was able to infiltrate the movie industry which Jack Dragna was never able to do he didn't really have the charisma to do it and couldn't befriend those people Um, so that was a big thing that uh, all of a sudden the movie industry which kind of was an untapped market for the mafia was able to get infiltrated by Bugsy Siegel he was friends with Clark Gable, Tony Curtis, Cary Grant, Frank Sinatra, Louis B. Mayer, who was one of the founders of MGM. Um, actress Jean Harlow was actually his daughter's godmother. I mean, so he was like in deep. Um, he at one point, just to kind of give you an idea of like his crazy personality, tried to sell guns to Mussolini. Okay. Well, um, some well. say he did. Someday it didn't go through, but he had met Mussolini and they talked about doing like a gun like trading guns or selling guns to each other which is crazy Jesus. and then at another point he had met a couple nazis um not like hitler that high up but you know like pretty high level nazis who he immediately said he hated and was out to kill them and was going to assassinate them um but he was being pleaded not to from other gang members because i think they realized it was might be a big mess and the the end of him so he kind of let that go he was very much larger than life, as you can imagine. Um, there's many s- movies about him, like I said, Dick Tracy, which had Madonna and um, who's the dude? I don't know, whatever. The dude like uh, the Cary Grant of the 80s and 90s. Um, I, would, I would actually not know that question. <laughs> I'll, it'll come to me. Another movie called Mobsters, obviously. Another movie called Lansky. Um, and then Gangster Squad. Those are some of the movies that are that have like the mob uh, Bugsy Siegel tie to them. So Cohen was flashy in his own way. He wasn't as good looking, but he had like a big personality. He could only count to five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some personality. <laughs> he, he had to get by in his wits because he couldn't read or write. You know, <laughs> so clearly he wasn't as suave or like charismatic because he just he. But he had street smarts, obviously, and he was clearly murdering people left and right, and you know stealing um he loved suits which was his big thing he loved to dress up and whatever um and he had a ton of closets notoriously in his house he he actually owned at one point a suiting clothing store which only carried suits and it only carried suits in his size Mm. he was five five you know so which so every suit on the rack was only in his size um and his store was suit shop of all time (laughs) It's like a little doll clothing store. Um, not saying five five is like super short, but they're well. The they suits definitely look adorable. Short it was. For sure. Yeah. My so my suit store, jackets look adorable. <laughs> they do. Um, his clothing store was called Michael's Exclusive Haberdashery. If that doesn't seem more adorable too. What is a ha- what is um, haberdashery? Haberdashery is like a clothing, like a what they call clothing stores back then, mm. where you would get buy your stuff, get it tailored. You know, sounds like those kids are getting into some haberdashery. I feel like yeah. that's where you'd use that. But anyway, continue. 
You're thinking of hashadashery. Is that actually? <laughs> no. Oh. Um, so. Oh, hashadashery. No, you got uh, it. I understand so Cohen. <laughs> okay. Cohen's a few of his nicknames um, were King of Sunset Strip or the Boss of Hollywood uh, because he was constantly in the papers. He was always with a different girl. He wore fedoras. Um, and he always was in the paper, obviously, because his friendship with Miss uh, Mrs. Mirror, who we talked about earlier, because she would always put him in the paper and he always had a quote to give. Um, he also had a hand-washing obsession, which now we know is OCD, but back then they didn't realize what it was. Um, and in his ranch home, which was modest compared to Bugsy Siegel's, who had this big mansion. Yeah, I looked up Bugsy Siegel's house. It's pretty sick. Yeah, he had a, a ranch-style house in Brentwood um, and with a water heater big enough for a luxury hotel because he washed his hands in warm water so much uh, he needed the hot water. Hmm. Yeah. He didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't do drugs, um, which was really common, I found, for a lot of these, like, club owners or big-time bob uh, mob bosses that, like, ran booze everywhere. Like, they didn't do it themselves. Um, so he had a big soda... Uh, fountain machine in his house which is also adorable <laughs> yeah he charged five dollars per drink <laughs> right he wouldn't give change because he didn't know how mm-hmm. um when his house was under construction the lapd vice came in uh, posing as workers and bugged his house so he was constantly being monitored yeah. without him knowing so that's cute too he had no idea <laughs> this house blew up in 1950 uh, they put 12 sticks of dynamite on one end of the house because him and his wife had separate rooms. His wife lived at one end. He lived at the other with his big closets and his soda machine, his hot water, and his suits. And his wife lived at the other end, hmm. which probably was a good thing for her. Um, he was actually visiting her under the house when his end blew up. Wow. So he survived, of course. So because... He is so lucky. I'm going to play Frank Sinatra's Luck Be a Lady. Frank Sinatra, by the way, was obsessed with Bugsy Siegel. They were friends, and he, like, wanted to be Bugsy Siegel and was always bragging to people, apparently, about how many people Bugsy Siegel murdered, which I think is odd. But here is Luck Be a Lady by Frank Sinatra. for it. There you go. Luck be a lady tonight. Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra. That's very casino-ish. Um, 
So the man who brought all this organized crime specifically to the Hollywood scene was William Billy Wilkerson. Wilkerson was born into a life of gambling, basically. His dad was a compulsive gambler, and when he died, left the family in massive debt. Um, when Wilkerson got older and was in New Jersey, kind of, he was from Tennessee, he moved up to New York and New Jersey. Um, and at one point, a friend of his won a movie theater in a gambling bet, <laughs> of course. And Wilkerson agreed to help run it. Um, he also ended up running um, speakeasies in New Jersey and kind of had this speakeasy um, background on the East Coast. He moved to Los Angeles at some point um, and to expand his business on the other coast. He, at one point, was the district manager of Universal Pictures, which kind of gave him the in in Hollywood for a while at the beginning, obviously. Um, he was a teetotaler, interestingly enough, which I just said before, a lot of these people in this business who pushed booze on people did not do it themselves. He only drank Coke, so maybe he went to Mickey Cohen's house and they shared a $5 Coke out of his soda machine. Could be. Know. It's very possible. Could be. Very possible. Um, he started the influential Hollywood Reporter, which is Hollywood's first daily entertainment trade newspaper. I'm sure you've heard of it. If not, that's insane. Yes, I have. You live in Hollywood? Mm -hmm. Yes, okay. The first edition appeared on September 3rd, 1930, and featured Wilkerson's front page column called Trade Views, which became a really influential um, column. A lot of people basically did whatever he said they should be doing. Um, he also went into the restaurant business shortly after that. In 1933, he opened a restaurant called Vendum, located at 6666 Sunset, which was a block from the Hollywood Reporter's uh, offices. It became a pretty popular Hollywood delicatessen that served imported European delicacies. He had French champagne and European liqueurs under um, the counter, you know, so he was bootlegging that stuff. Well, I guess he wasn't he wasn't making it, but he was like selling it under the counter um, to people uh, who would come in for lunch or whatever. And that went on until the end of Prohibition, which is in 1933. So in 1933, with the decriminalization of alcohol, that kind of signaled a new outlaw era on the Strip. So booze became legal, um, but it brought on kind of burlesque and, and um, you know, still the illegal gambling and all that. It's just now that they, they could now have alcohol legally in, like, the supper clubs and the nightclubs and all this. Um which was much more glamorous, you know, according to everybody in Hollywood at that time because it was more out in the open, but it ended up being more dangerous because everybody was legally drinking. Um, the new man responsible for this, obviously, was Billy Wilkerson, and he kind of started the era of these nightclubs um, all along the Strip once alcohol was out in the open. One of his first places... Um, he leased after his little delicatessen. Uh, he got a place that used to be the cafe Le Bonham, I think it's pronounced. Le Bonham. In, Le Bonham. You know, you know Bonham. Bohem. <laughs> at 8610 Sunset. <laughs> Boheme. Um, and in January 1934, uh, he opened it up to use it he wanted to have it for his net like now legal champagnes he wanted a place to store it 
but at the urging of movie stars like uh, Norma Shearer and Kay Francis, he decided to open an exclusive supper and nightclub in the space. So originally he got it because he needed just a place to put his legal booze. Mm. Um, and then they were like, no, 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 open up a nightclub, open up this cool place. Let's let's have some fun, you know. So he used his trade papers influence to bribe and blackmail producer um, Myron Selznick into bankrolling a lavish opening party. The Hollywood, or sorry, the Los Angeles Mirror had a quote about this opening called, that said, quote, the check became the birth certificate to the Sunset Strip. Mm. So this one place kind of like started this whole like um, upscale supper club, you know, place for mobsters and gambling and all this stuff to kind of flourish. No expense was spared when designing Wilkerson's vision. Um, it was French theme, probably to go along with all the champagne he had like imported and was selling illegally and, and now could sell legally. So it had this big French theme which was his favorite because he went on to kind of do a lot of French themed things. It had ornate chandeliers, the chairs were all covered in silk and even the molding around the ceiling had like gold in it. Mm. And it was a black tie only attire supper club. That's fancy. That's very fancy. He called it, it was very fancy. He called it Cafe Trocadero, Trocadero, um, which opened like I said, in 1934, uh-huh. and immediately became a place where Hollywood stars were seen because of the opening. Um, photographers of the stars out in the town uh, would sometimes appear in the Hollywood Reporter the next day. So r- after the big opening, it was pretty popular for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, the reservations just stopped, and it was virtually empty, and he was like, what is going on? So he had it sounds like one of the first like schemes to get people into your clubs by using the velvet rope like tactic he ordered the velvet rope to be put out in front of his his restaurant um he kept the band inside playing super super loud music and he told the person at the telephone to answer the calls but say they were booked solid for the next two weeks and the charade worked word spread about the supposed popularity of the supper club and it ended up being packed solid for the next four years Uh with reservations it was the place to be for celebs they'd get photographed um they'd come in they'd promote something they'd sit down they'd have their picture taken and then depending on how popular they were uh, wilkerson would put him in the hollywood reporter like the next day fred astaire was there bing crosby lucille ball desi arnaz many of the mgm execs frequented the place and comedian Jack Benny said, quote, dining at the tr- uh, Troc, which is what it, the, the, uh, it was called for short, was better than paying an expensive publicist. So, which I think today it would be like the Ivy in Hollywood, where it's like, people are like, oh, they were, so-and-so was at the Ivy eating out in the patio. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, yeah, that's where all the paparazzi know to go to, to, to take a picture of somebody, so without calling your publicist and having to like pay somebody to say, Hey, you're here, just show up there and they'll take a picture of you. You know, easy. It's free, free publicity, no brainer. So this has been going on obviously for decades and decades in Hollywood. So Wilkerson was a gambling addict like his father. Um, and he had a back room, either backroom gambling dens or basement gambling dens, depending on his establishment. Cause he had many on the sunset strip. 
and he hosted all of the mobsters. So he is credited when we're saying he's credited with bringing the mob to Hollywood. A lot of the early LA mob was um, originally in what's called the his today is called the historic plaza area of LA. Basically, where the LA formed around the um, Los Angeles River Basin. You know, back when the mission was there. So, like the original little square plaza where they put the church and the mission and the the you know the river and where the you know the original Spanish settlement was was called the plaza area. And when the Italians first came over, that's where they settled. So to get them out to Hollywood, um, Wilkerson had him come out to all these clubs. So that's how the mob actually got out to the Hollywood area. Um, so that's why he's credited for bringing everybody kind of out that way in this unincorporated area on Sunset Strip. Um, in 1935, Thelma Todd, who was a famous actress at the time, she had been in over 120 films. She mysteriously died after partying, partying the night before at Trox. She was fighting with her ex and was found in her ex's girlfriend's garage, having died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Mm hmm she was she had a restaurant and a big house over on pch mm -hmm. like a, a malibu mm -hmm. area she was partying partying on sunset at, at the truck and went home somebody drove her home and there they don't i don't know if it was her car or his car but somebody else drove her home because she'd been partying and the next morning she was she had been in her her ex-boyfriend had showed up with another woman at this party so she was kind of mad but they said she was okay she went home and she ended up in this ex-boyfriend's girlfriend's garage yeah dead and that's a little fish so it, it says accidental poison carbon monoxide poisoning or murder they're not sure and it's still they don't know so in 1938, Wilkerson announced he had sold um, the truck Adero to Nolan Hahn, who was another gangster who owned an illegal casino in Glendale. Um, it was rumored that Siegel and Cohen actually put up the money to remo remodel the place, and they reopened it, calling it instead of the Cafe Trocadero, they called it the Trocadero. Mm. Very <laughs> For creative. many years, it was opened after that. Yeah. Wilkerson also owned a place called LaRue's, which was across the street from Trox. And there's a picture I found online that kind of shows the two across the street from each other. So I'll post that. Yeah. So I'm going to play, or actually you're going to play. I'm going to play, yeah. Um, some of the people that visited there in the 40s and into the 50s was like the Rat Pack. So we're going to play some like Rat Pack, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin stuff. So Aiden's going to play Sammy Davis Jr. Something's got to give. No, I'm going to play Matt King Cole's that. Bedtime. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Just imagine you're in a, the club or the Trocadero. Yeah, because it was all jazz, and then some people would get up and sing and all that cool stuff. So next, Wilkerson opened up Ciro's, which is a very, very, was at the time, very one of the very famous jazz clubs in L.A. Um, Ciro's was at 8433 Sunset. 
Um, it opened on January in January 1940. Wilkerson only owned it for two years, and then it was taken over by Herman Hoover. Um, one of the stories about Ciro's, which I kind of stumbled across, was an um, an interesting story. So they would tr- they would kind of do things to get their own publicity, and obviously Wilkerson would put it in the Hollywood Reporter. So at one point, when Herman Hoover took it over, there was a uh, a burlesque dancer. Her name her name was Lily Saint Sir C Y R. She was a famous burlesque dancer. Um, she was born in Minnesota. She had a couple sisters. She was five nine, and had this amazing body apparently, according to everybody, and she stumbled into burlesque because her sisters were kind of doing it and she went to her with her sisters so, so, uh, some auditions in San Francisco and all the dancers there were wondering why she wasn't dancing because she was so beautiful so she tried it out became like a dancer not a headlining dancer but um, was kind of dancing in troops and stuff and realized that if you could get nude or semi-nude you'd make a ton more money and because she'd had a background in ballet as a kid, she started kind of choreographing her own stuff, which became like legendary choreography for her later on. She danced all over the country, up into Canada, Boston, Hollywood, San Francisco, into Canada. Um, legend has it, she was so popular and people were so well known, legend has it that Marilyn Monroe was so taken with her that she copied her poodle haircut, which is kind of the real bleach blonde, tight curled haircut you yeah. see. Uh, Marilyn Monroe having in some of the starlets at the time um, and her and her soft whispery voice um, St. Sir's voice was like soft and whispery and kind of like sexy or whatever she was married six times she didn't want to have kids which was <clears throat> to the astonishment of like post-war America in any interview she had they couldn't get over the fact that she never she was married six times and didn't want kids um, and she had numerous well-publicized suicide attempts so she, they were so well known that she even performed a faux suicide in one of her dance routines. So she would come in, she would start undressing, she would stare at like a picture of her lover or whatever that was on her nightstand, and then she would grab a bottle of fake pills and she would down them with a bunch of alcohol, and then she would like dramatically fall to the floor, and everybody would like stand up and give her a standing ovation. Okay, <laughs> so, cool. Yes, very dramatic. So in night in October nineteenth of nineteen fifty one. So we're jumping ahead just because I liked the story so much because I thought it was interesting. Um, Herman Hoover booked um, St. Sir. Uh, she became the first headliner dancer on the strip at Ciro's nightclub in Hollywood, and she was billed as the at- at- um, atomic bomb. Is that where... What does uh, it say? No, a- anatomic bomb. <laughs> Sorry, anatomic bomb. Is that where blonde bombshell comes from? Well, it's because of her body. She was blonde, and she hurt. You have to think in the 40s they were doing like the atomic bombing in Nevada and stuff and because she was anatomically well, they were doing perfect. The, they were doing the atomic bombing in Japan too. Well, yes. Sadly, yeah. yes. But because she was atomic bomb and anatomically perfect anatomic mm, bomb. Get uh, it? I understand, yes. Okay, that was mind-bending. <laughs> so she was arrested for public indecency uh, um, by police during her famous bubble bath dance. So her bubble bath dance was obviously she was in a bubble bath and she would her legs would come out and she would undress and there would be fake like all these bubbles everywhere. 
The sheriff's department said they had received numerous calls from customers who considered her act lewd and li- lis- li- uh, lascivious. Those are all the calls from the wives of people whose husbands right. went there? Well, it was actually one call. Joking. A caller named Jim Byron, hmm. who was actually a Ciro's employee, okay, well. who called the sheriff's department and tipped them off. It was actually a publicity stunt set up by Hoover, and Byron claimed that the sheriff's department was actually in on it, too. So she ended up being represented by infamous Hollywood attorney Jerry Geisler in court. Geisler went on to, like, uh, represent Bugsy Siegel in murder trials. Mm. And, you know, I'm going to do a whole other podcast on him. He's fascinating. He was, like, the Hollywood lawyer, got everybody off. It was insane. Um, The jury insisted that she act out her her performance because she was saying it was art and everyone else thought it was lewd. And she called it refined and elegant. So she slipped off her dress in court. She put on a hat, slipped off her brassiere, um, and she had another one underneath it, but just for effect. And she slipped into negligee, did this whole thing, and undressed discreetly. Her lawyer, like, was a prop at some point, and she kind of redid her whole bubble bath thing. And after... 80, after this and then going through some other stuff, uh, the jury went into deliberation, and about after 80 minutes, they acquitted her, and she walked away. And there is a famous picture of her with her lawyer, uh, Jerry Geisler, and she's, like, laughing hysterically because she's so happy, and she's holding a pair of, like, thong underwear in her hands, and it was on the, the, pa- the front page of the LA Times. <laughs> I thought it was funny. So that was my little rabbit hole that I thought was interesting. So famous actresses like Marilyn Monroe, which we said before, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Ava Gardner, Sidney Poitier, Mickey Rooney, Ginger Rogers, Ronald Reagan, ex-president, Judy Garland, and all the, um, you know, were all there. I mean, those are huge Hollywood names back when Hollywood was like, you know, amazing. And they would go see early Rat Pack performances before they were the, considered the Rat Pack. Um, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Frank Sinatra. Um, they also had a three-strike rule about fighting because there were so many drunken fights that went on, and the only person that was exception to that rule was Frank Sinatra because he fought all the time, and he was so popular that they just kind of let it go. Frank Sinatra, by the way, side note, was his nickname is Old Blue Eyes, and because he was obsessed with Bugsy Siegel, Bugsy Siegel, interestingly enough, had very, very blue eyes, so they were both known for their very blue eyes. All right. Um, according to urban legend, um, the stairway into the basement um, at Ciro's had gun-sized holes in the walls that were used to kill people as they walked downstairs into the gambling den and, like, the murder area. Because apparently there was, like, uh, uh, the downstairs area of Ciro's is where they would bring people to either murder them or they thought they were going to go gambling <clears throat> or thought they were going to talk business and end up being murdered, and they, I guess they would stick the gun barrel through the holes and, like, shoot them on the way down the, in the stairway. Um, and they would obviously torture and kill people down there. Um, and uh, they used the upstairs area, unfortunately, for illegal abortions. Oh, um, Jesus. Okay. Ciro's um, is now the comedy store. Really? Okay, yes. And it's literally the same building. So supposedly the comedy store is very, very haunted because of all this like mob related stuff that went on back and then. And there's a bunch of, there's they always been, talk about how there's a bunch of secret rooms in the comedy store and 
weird. Yes, it's all, it's all because yes, it's all because this mob stuff. And Mickey Cohen supposedly killed so many people in the basement of Ciro's, which is now the comedy store, at the time that sometimes when people are laughing at the comedy store, people think they can hear victims screaming underneath the laughing <laughs> from the basement. Wow. Yes. So, in honor of Lily St. Cyr, I'm going to play um, a song that she used to come out to and dance to called Harlem Nocturne. Mm -hmm. If I can find it. Hold on. Have you heard of most of those um, famous people that I was just talking about? Like the young, like the early Hollywood starlets. With the stuff. list you had just had, and like Ronald Reagan. Yeah, yeah, and like Judy Garland. Oh yeah, Ginger I mean, Rogers. I've heard their names. Okay. I've heard all of those names. Okay, but I, I don't know. Okay, yeah. So here is a song that um, Lily used to come out and do her burlesque show to, and you can see why in a second. Can you see it? Can you picture yep. it? Bubble bath. <laughs> it's all there. I, it's all there. I think that's also the song. Like when you see like a 1940s like black and white movie, mm -hmm. and the girl, girl, girl you, shows her ankles, and all the guys are like, Whoa. yeah, and, and and you bust into like the PI's office to shake somebody down <laughs> or look for somebody. That's the song they're always playing. Yep. So in 1945, Wilkerson bought 33 acres on the east side of Route 91 um, in right outside of Las Vegas, Nevada, for his vision for a casino outside of the LA area. Um, he wanted the hotel to be different from all the quote sawdust joints that were on Fremont Street, which is kind of where all the old gambling dens used to kind of started out, you know, which is now like the historic Fremont Street where all the older casinos mm -hmm. are. And he wanted this to be an upscale French style casino, of course, the French style. Almost immediately, he was in financial trouble um, and was about $400,000 short to finish the project, and he was looking for backers. So Bugsy Siegel at the time was also looking to invest in a casino out in the area in Vegas because everyone was getting sick of the uh, LAPD and Sheriff's Department kind of, they were tr trying to go a little bit legit, and they were getting sick of getting busted. and. And there was so many infighting with the mob at the time in L.A. Um, there was numerous unsolved murders, and it was all gang-related, as you can imagine. So people were kind of looking to get out that could. So he um, kind of showed up at, with Wilkerson. He had some people invest in the property that he was starting, 
Um, and Wilkerson at first didn't really know it was Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy kind of went in and bought two thirds of the stake in the project from Wilkerson um, without really telling Wilkerson it was him, you know, but eventually it was known and it was fine. Um, the casino uh, had problems getting built from the get go because they were so in debt and it was so lavish and it was supposed to be this, you know, new inventive things and, and start this whole Las Vegas empire that was to come. And Wilkerson's actually the one that had the vision for that. Bugsy Siegel sometimes gets um, the honor of thinking that he started Vegas as we know it today. Like he gets the credit. Um, but he gets the credit for it, but it was actually Wilkerson who had the vision to go to Vegas mm-hmm. and turn like this area that was had legal gambling into this big mecca for casinos and for gambling, um, knowing that there was just kind of these little you know, cowpoke casinos. Um, it was his actual vision, but because he was running out of money, Bugsy Siegel came in and they, they got it done. They were very, very over budget. Um, the casino opened on December 26, 1946 and Siegel named the hotel, the Flamingo Hotel and Casino after his girlfriend at the time, Virginia Hill, whose nickname was Flamingo. And he called her that because she had long skinny legs. During the final phase of the building of the casino, Bugsy got into some trouble with his old pal, Meyer Lansky, who, as you know, remember, was from his New York childhood friend who was running the New York mafia out Mm -hmm. there. Um, And he was also known as, Lansky was also known as the mob's accountant. So he was very into watching the financials of everything going on around the country. He was hip to the fact that Siegel was probably skimming off the top of the hotel's budget during the building phase. Um... And after the casino opened and little revenue coming in at first, uh, he was, they were looking to basically off him because they were pissed off and he thought he was stealing and they were friends. Lansky tried to kind of delay them offing him because they were childhood friends. Um, And the casino after it opened did started making some money, but then it was found out that uh, Little Miss Virginia Hill, Miss Flamingo, took off with about $2.5 million and went to Switzerland. Oh, that's too much money. So they thought maybe they were skimming off the top, taking the money to Switzerland and opening up a Swiss bank account over there. And that's where Bugsy Siegel was like hiding money. And he was having Virginia Hill like funnel it for him, Mm -hmm. basically. So Lansky waited for the hotel to turn profit, which it did, but it ended up being too late. um, And Siegel was already kind of down the creek without a paddle, so to say. And when he got back to uh, Virginia Hill's home, she had a house in Beverly Hill. He was hanging out there. She was actually out of town at the time. On June 20th, 1947, um, Bugsy was shot to death. It's still an unsolved murder. Um, Obviously, it was probably members of his own gang who were tired of him stealing from them and all his kind of antics that were going on. When Mickey Cohen heard about the assassination of Siegel, he supposedly went to the Hotel Roosevelt there on Sunset, which is still there to this day and very famous. Um, We'll talk about that in another episode as well. He thought the murderers were actually hiding out there, so he went into the lobby and shot up the ceiling, um, which had bullet holes there for a while, I guess. And when the cops started coming down the street, he took off. Um, So still at this time, the sheriff's department was pretty cozy with the nightclub and the casinos, you know, because of all the corruption going on. And a lot of the unorganized crime was kind of going unchecked relatively around the strip. As I said, there were a lot of murders going on. Um, and Mickey Cohen, and during the 40s and 50s, and specifically 
Jack Dragna fought for the LA supremacy um, supremacy to see who could be like the boss, the main boss. So they were constantly fighting. And all those murders and all that stuff going on ended up becoming known as the Sunset Wars. Um, and that's a whole other thing of just the attempts that Jack Dragna did on Cohen was amazing. Um, he was targeted again in 1948 in another um, assassination attempt. Uh, Cohen was at his suit shop, his haberdashery, and he was, they sprayed bullets into the place, but he was in the back and wasn't hit. So he, he is thought to have had between Mickey Cohen about nine to 11 assassination attempts on his life, throughout his life. And he always got away. Um, he, at one point, bought a bulletproof Cadillac and had all, like, bulletproof windows, bulletproof sides. The glass was supposedly, like, an inch and something quarter thick or whatever and spent all this money on it, um, which was considered an illegal car in L.A. at the time. So I don't think he actually was legally allowed to drive it, but he had one. Um so eventually there were so many murders and the mob was battling so much that the East Coast leaders kind of gave the, the sounding to stop. They were like, you guys need to stop. The FBI is coming down hard. You know, they know that the LAPD and the sheriff's office is in cahoots with everybody and too many people are dying, too much crap's going on. So the FBI was coming down to LA and they were getting super suspicious. And um, at this point, this is when a lot of big mobsters around the country were getting busted and because they were so shifty with like their murders and stuff as you know like Bugsy Siegel staying at a hospital and everything they were starting to get them on tax evasion so um, uh, Bugsy had died at this point Al Capone went to jail for tax evasion and then that's eventually what they got Mickey Cohen on to Mickey Cohen is said to have had killed possibly 40 people as well Mm -hmm. in his lifetime so in 1951, um, when all the mob bosses were going to jail, uh, Mickey Cohen served uh, four years out of his term and got out on good behavior. Uh, by the late 50s, the strip began to close. Um, a lot of its, you know, the jazz and all the big um, Wilkerson establishments, all that kind of era was closing down. In 1949, a new sheriff um, captain came in and he was charged with cleaning up the the county strip and giving police service um, to maintain law and order and rid the community of hoodlums and undesirable characters and he did it he started to clean it up all the mob bosses went to jail and things started turning around and eventually movie stars and mobsters were increasingly going to vegas to kind of get out their kicks and they also started heavily advertising on the strip billboards um, to go to vegas which Mm. you actually still see today um, so by the mid-50s, the strip was becoming um, less shady, less trendy, and le- legend- uh, many of the legendary nightclubs folded. So in 1957, on the Mike Wallace show, Mike Wallace actually interviewed um, our favorite burlesque, Lily St. Sure, mm. Sir, um, and he was appalled by her and basically told her she was going to hell, and she cried. Cool. Uh, but he also interviewed Mickey Cohen, and on national TV, and he was quoted as saying, I have killed no men that in the first place didn't deserve being killed. Mm. So he... Definitely killed some people. Basically, 
admitted to killing people. I just like the way he he for, he uh, worded it <laughs> on national TV. Yeah. So he got divorced. His wife was like, I'm so sick of your soda fountain, your stupid hand washing, and my separate room. I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up dying in his sleep at age 62. All right. And that closes the era of the mobsters, Sunset Strip, Mickey Cohen, Bugsy Siegel, and all the coolness that went around there. Um, what do you think about all that? I don't know. It's crazy stuff. You, I mean, I thought you were like way in- into mob stuff early on, like at some point as a child. I mean, I yeah. liked. I don't know. Not really. I've never. I've never researched a lot of that stuff as much as like World War Two mm-hmm. and all that other crap. Yeah, it's pretty cuckoo, um, and the mob stuff is so. Like, I, I don't know. It, it's you're very dark. It's like a you look like a ghost. I, well, on I know. I was, it was just pitch black, but I put my flashlight on. So, oh, um, I don't know. It's so convoluted. There's so many families and so many people coming and going. Yeah. You know, and I think LA has such an interesting history with the mob because they were so late to the game. It seemed like. I mean. It, they didn't have the big time East Coast thing, you know, and the and the big time bosses and all that yeah. stuff that you kind of hear on the East Coast. But we, they did have, you know, their own. Well, it sounds like they Italian mafia had their own and thing going on. Yeah, the Jewish mafia was there, and you know, now we have obviously the the infamous L.A. gangs, yeah. you know, um, that do their own thing around here right now yeah. too. So, and the Mexican gang and all that kind of stuff. So, it's definitely a thing. It's just changed to something different. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we're going to play out with Dean Martin, whose nickname was Dino. I'm part of the Rat Pack as well. I'm going to play, I guess, Ain't That a Kick in the Pants. Okay. Sorry, Ain't That a Kick in the Head. I don't know why I thought it said pants. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Hope that wasn't too confusing because I feel like my brain's going to explode. <laughs> Sleep and keep grinning If this is just the beginning